welcome. Glad you're here. Luke 22 is where we are. Listen, let me open with this um, question for you. You can punch this into the live chat if you want to, or you can just kind of ponder this for your own self. The question is this, how have you grown in the midst of the mess? We're in week two of messiness, seeing the disciples' messiness. And there's relational, spiritual, emotional messes. In fact, we all have on our resume uh, some really public and really private messes, don't we? So the question is, um, how have you grown? Not in spite of the messes, but actually because of them. So messy mealtime is what we're looking at. Jesus' small group uh, has made a mess of their mealtime here at the Last Supper. Here's the really good news. Jesus not only came for the messy, but he loves the messy, and Jesus saves the messy. I was looking up some things two weeks ago for this message, uh, and experts say that it's important to let your kids make a mess at mealtime. It's important for them to get their hands on it and make mistakes. Because this is all part of their development. It's how they learn to feed themselves. You know, our grandparents knew this all along. You grandparents out there, like, duh. If you fail to let your kids fail, you handicap them. If you fail to let your kids fail, you fail to grow them up. The mess helps us grow. I wish I had different news for you. I wish it was different in my own life. The mess helps us grow. We grow not not in spite of messiness, but because of our messiness. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and we have a tradition around here. We, we do other kinds of series periodically, but most often we will take a book of the Bible and just walk through it, uh, verse by verse. We'll just kind of look through it and, and see what it has to, to offer us. Luke's been teaching us um, and has brought us right up to the very last meal of Jesus before his arrest. You know, in looking at the life of Jesus, we are seeing not only how, um, how to be saved from death, right? Jesus is, is showing the gospel to us, but he's also showing us something else. He's showing us how to live on mission. And this message this morning, again, could not be more relevant because we are living in uncertain times. We don't know what's right around the corner. And Jesus speaks to that to his disciples. All right, we're calling this messy mealtimes. This is week two of messy mealtimes. Remember that making a mess is normal. In fact, it takes practice not to make a mess. Mess is sort of a metaphor for sin. It doesn't just get us dirty, but it stains us and it, and it scars us. There's various ways for meals to go wrong, various ways for meals to get messy, relationally, spiritually, practically. Jesus walks through all of these with us. You know, making a mess is cute when you're little, but the stakes rise as you get older. Your growth comes not in spite of messiness, but in the midst of messiness. Not only yours, but others as well. Here's, here's what I want you to remember at the start of this. I said this last week, and I, just, I think it's important for us to see this on the front end, to keep this as a banner. His banner over us is love. Okay? So hear this really, really clearly. I am not talking about how to avoid uh, relational messiness or spiritual messiness or anything else so you can make your life a little bit better so that you can tweak it. I want you to realize this. God came to save 
sinners. What is sin but missing the mark, right? So as you're trying to learn to feed yourself, you are missing the mark all over the place. That's a picture of a toddler trying to eat his food. But um, through it all, as, as, we, as we miss the mark, um, and as we think about our sin, as we think about our mess, there's no point denying our mess. There's no point denying our sin. There's also no point in uh, embracing it and saying, well, I'm just a messy person. This is just who I am. And sitting and wallowing in our messiness. It's best to acknowledge the mess and invite Jesus into it to cleanse us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what being a Christian is all about. Now, those of you who have ever prepared a meal know that um, meals are such a source of incredible joy, and meals can also blow up in your face. They can go sideways and off the rails so quickly and in so many different ways. Let me get you to think back to maybe your, your last like royal meal mayhem that, that you had. Again, maybe it was this last week on some random weeknight. Maybe it was a special meal you prepared, and it just didn't go how you had planned it. This isn't my most recent, but probably one of my most memorable. I was a senior in high school, and I went with my mom up to San Francisco to my grandpa's house for Thanksgiving meal. She said, Dave, I want you to come with me uh, kind of for moral support. There's a bit of a strain in the relationship. My grandpa is an alcoholic, and, and he promised he wouldn't be drunk, and he broke that promise. So we show up in San Francisco, uh, and the moment we walk into his house... There's a tension, there's a cloud, there's, there's strain over this Thanksgiving meal. Uh, partway through preparing it, um, it ended with, with me getting scalded by the au gratin potatoes, which I think is Latin for, ouch, that's really hot, because those poured all over my legs as they were being um, kind of prepped and, and placed on the meal. You know, my most thankful part of Thanksgiving meal that year was driving away from my grandpa's house. Meals can be amazing, but they can also blow up in your face. You see, driving away from that, it wasn't just that the meal went kind of sideways. It was a loss. It was grieving all that could and should be in a relationship between a father and a daughter, and now a daughter and her son, and trying to make it all work. Here's what I want you to think about. You don't give up eating together because you're not perfect at it. I mean, here's the truth of it. I've had a Thanksgiving meal every year since then. That's gone up as my worst one. So we're getting better at it, little by little. So there's progress available, right? Not not looking for perfection on this. So Jesus is having this nice planned meal. It says he eagerly is looking forward to it. He's made preparations for the upper room. It's Passover. It's a huge deal to sit and have this meal. It's deeply significant on any year, but on this year, it is the most significant of all of the years, and it gets messy. By way of review, if you missed uh, week one, um, I'm just phrasing this in three different ways that disciples are messy. Disciples then and disciples now are messy. Disciples are relationally messy. You know, arguing about who is the greatest in front of the great I am is more than silly, right? It's just kind of dumb. They are, what, what they're doing is they're following the pattern of the leaders around them. These are people who are big on titles 
and big on comfort for themselves, and they are low on service, and they are low on love for others. What does Jesus do? He sets them straight, and he does so without shaming them. Jesus comes in and sets them straight, but he doesn't do it with heaps of shame. Jesus stays with his disciples in their mess. Do not miss this. Hear this. Jesus stays with his disciples in their mess. I want you to think of how you were parented. If you're a parent right now, I want you to think of how you parent. Jesus didn't send his disciples on a timeout. That's sending the disciples away. Nor did Jesus storm out. That's Jesus going away. What does Jesus do? He sticks it out. Timeout is sending away the offending party. Storming out is saying, ah, turn the tables over. I've had enough. Why are you guys making this all about you? And storming out. Jesus stays with his friends, with his disciples in the mess. He sticks it out. And he doesn't just stick it out. When you can't behave, when you are making a mess of things, Jesus sticks it out. That's good news. Here's better news. The better news is not only does Jesus stay with me in the mess, but he also guides us as disciples out of the mess. Instead of exploding in anger, instead of sending the disciples away to figure it out on their own, he teaches them about what leadership in the kingdom is all about. Remember that he had just washed their feet. He took up the servant's role and demonstrated, if I as your teacher am here among you as one who serves, you should serve one another. So that example had just happened at this meal. One of the things that got canceled around here is is a a video conference that we do every year called Empowered to Connect. And it's geared toward those who are working with kids from trauma, particularly foster care system or adoption situations. Might be parents, grandparents, teachers, social workers. And this whole idea came from a, a woman named Dr. Karen Purvis. She's gone home to be with the Lord now. But it's the idea of connected parenting. And this is a connected parenting principle. Karen didn't invent it. She just discovered it through the life of Jesus. You know, kids need help processing and practicing. Think about a timeout. What a timeout does is it sends the child away. In theory, for them to figure out what they did wrong. Have you ever been sent away to your room? Go think about what you did wrong. Go think about why you're on this timeout. And so isolation and working through big emotions, kids are supposed to work through that on their own. Uh, This is not only ineffective, but it sends this message. It can send this message over and over and over every time a timeout happens. It can send this message that I want you around me when you're ready to behave. I want you around me. You are welcome in my presence when you can behave. I don't know about you, but my kids can't behave a lot of the time. They just can't. They're working through it. There's big, giant emotions. And so if timeout is the only tool in your tool bag, you are expecting that in isolation and aloneness, your disciple, your child, is going to somehow magically grow up. The contrast of that is this, a time-in. A time-in approach is to connect with your child, to move toward them in their pain, in their dysregulation, in their freak-out moments. 
and moving towards your child with a time in is far less convenient for the parent every time. A time out, go to your room, is more convenient. Now, sometimes space away is good. Everyone needs to take a deep breath. You need to regulate yourself as much as the child needs to regulate. But as quickly as you can, moving toward a time in is less convenient, but far more compassionate and far more effective at teaching and training the child in the way to go and to move toward them and to show that you're for them and to be able to teach them uh, a lesson. Your relationships are messy because of sin. There's a universal truth, and part of the curse of sin is that our relationships are broken. There's a dividing wall of hostility, not just between nations, but between your own family members. Why is this? Because the curse of sin. We live in a fallen world. Last week, we looked carefully that the bricks of that are suspicion. There are suspicions between people and accusations that go on. But not only that, the the mortar that holds it together is comparing And we live in a culture of comparing, of ranking, of seeing where you fit. Am I better than you or worse than you? People walk into a room and size it up. And a life of suspicion and a life of comparing keeps building that wall of hostility between people. We are to do the hard work of getting along. Jesus is teaching children spiritual children, in the way they should go. This is discipleship. This is what it's all about. Comparing kills. God doesn't compare his creation, so neither should we. Stop a life of comparing by living a life of celebration. What does Jesus do with them? And we looked at this last week. In verse 28 of our passage, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Jesus is celebrating the 11. There's one that betrayed Judas. The 11, you've stayed with me in my trials. Jesus is celebrating that. But he goes on to celebrate their future. He gives them a a vision for what is ahead. He says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When the mess comes along, when there's relational messiness in Jesus' small group, he doesn't send them out for a timeout. He doesn't storm out. He sticks it out, and he teaches. So, friend, if you're in a mess right now, hold on. It's right here in the midst of the mess that you grow. Invite the presence of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the guidance, the light of Jesus to get you out of this mess. If you are the one doing the discipling, that means you, older Christian, to a younger Christian. That means you, all parents, you're discipling your children. Remember that the mess is not an inconvenience to hurry through. Man, let me say that again because this stabs to me. The mess is not an inconvenience to hurry through. Hurry up and get through this. But it's an opportunity to lovingly serve your children right in the midst of the hard, of the mess, of the misbehavior. All right, so they've made a a mess of things relationally thus far uh, at this famous meal we call the Last Supper, and now we're going to get to two more. Listen to how Jesus adds more spice into into this meal um, with their response. So if they're relationally, spiritually, here's the two we're going to cover this morning, spiritually, Messy is the first one. Look at verse 31. 
Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Pause for a moment. Peter, the name of Simon, those are interchangeable people. Peter gets the devastating news that the enemy of all that is good and godly has set his sights on him by name. He gets this news and he responds. Before we get to Peter's response, how would you respond? If you're having a meal with Jesus and he turns, of all the people there, he turns to one person and says, Simon. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. How would you respond? I thought about it. If my name were on the chopping block and it was there in the sights, I would be thinking a lot of things. I think one of the things I might be thinking is, Jesus, you've got this, right? I mean, can Satan demand anything of you? If he's demanding things from you, you've got this, right? You're not going to let him do it. And then you think about, like, what does satanic sifting of wheat look like? These guys were in a... a Agrarian society, like where we, they see this all the time. If you've ever seen this, this is a violent process. I know what that looks like. What does satanic sifting of my life look like? And Jesus, am I okay? I would be searching his face at this point. What does Peter do? Peter gets into a back and forth with Jesus, proclaiming his own sense of bravado, his ability, and confidence. Now remember what's just been going on. He's just been in an argument. There's accusation as to who's going to betray. So they're on the defensive. What does that morph into? That very quickly morphs into who the greatest is. So with with defensiveness on the tip of his tongue, and then making a case for how he's the greatest, it stands to reason that self-reliance is on the tip of his tongue. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to, to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, and until you deny three times that you know me. Peter is a spiritually hot mess. Can we see that? He doesn't have a clue what's really going on. He is a speak first, think maybe kind of a guy. We see this in his personality. This is how Peter is. He is leaning on his own understanding unto death. It is like he is blindly walking into a trap, completely confident of what his own abilities are. What does Jesus do? Jesus sets him straight. Now, for those of you with parents, for those of you with weakness as a parent, Often we hear, I'm going to set you straight in a very unchristlike way. Jesus sets Peter straight, but again, he does it shamelessly. Jesus stays with his disciples in their spiritual mess, and he's capable of guiding them out of the spiritual mess that they are in. In fact, Jesus uses this mess, that messy statement that he just did. It's like spilling the milk, right? I've got this, and it's just a mess. Jesus uses this mess as an occasion to give him a a vision for the future. What does he say? He says, 
Simon, I've prayed for you. Satan demanded these things, but hear me. I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And then he says something else. When you have turned again. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What he's saying here, if Peter has ears to hear, is I do have this. Jesus, do you have this? I do have this. I, Jesus, have prayed for you. And when you have turned again, that means you're not going to lose your faith. Strengthen your brothers. What he's saying is this. Get to the work of ministry that I've called you to. After you get off after you get your eyes off of yourself, which here in the present is on your future ability, right? Peter is self-obsessed of what he's capable of. So after you get your eyes off of yourself, here it's on your future ability. But in a few short days, it will be on your utter failure. Man, that's a whole sermon in, unto itself, isn't it? We can get our eyes on our crazy strong ability, be overconfident, or we can have our eyes on ourselves. It's the opposite side of the coin of pride. Self-loathing, self-focus, just our utter failure. Either way, both sides of that coin have our eyes on ourselves, focused on ourselves. So Jesus is saying, after you get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes on me and get back to the work I've called you to. You want to live a life of uh, a, a full life, an abundant life? A joyful life, a meaningful life, get your eyes off yourself. Get on with the work I have called you to. You know, when we see this episode at this meal, at this time, all the significance that's here, all the ways this could have blown up and does blow up in our own family meals, we see uh, in Peter, he shows once and for all that in Jesus' economy, failure is not fatal. Arguing about who's the best during this hour of intimacy. That's what they're doing. Adamant denial during Jesus' hour of need. That's what he's about to do. These are failures, but failure's not fatal. Peter is restored from this. In fact, Jesus sees to it personally and profoundly. Read ahead in the Gospels. We know this scene. On the beach... In a short time, Jesus is going to personally and profoundly restore Peter from his failure. Three times, he's about to deny that he even knows Jesus out of fear, out of having his eyes on himself. Three times, Jesus will come to Peter on that beach. Peter, do you love me? And what does he say after Peter says, Lord, I do love you? What does he say? Feed my sheep tend to the flock get on with the work strengthen the brothers i have work for you to do peter there's a mess coming i'm not going to rescue you out of it you're going to freely walk into that but when you turn again when you repent when you are restored strengthen the brothers feed my sheep Oh, it's so powerful that we get to read ahead and see the future of Peter's life. Why? Because we're living way in the future and because God chose to record it for us. What became of Peter? If you have a Bible open right now, I hope you do, turn to, turn to 1 Peter 5. 
First Peter chapter 5. Uh, this, this letter bears his name because Peter wrote it. Peter goes on to do what Jesus told him to do. He grows up from a child, from a messy toddler, into a father of the faith. Listen to what he wrote near the end of his life and think on this event. Okay, this is in 1 Peter chapter 5, but overlay it on lessons we know that he learned as a little spiritual baby. He wrote this in probably 63 or 64 AD. So this is some 30 years after this dinner, after this Passover meal. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, it says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter's now a fellow elder, a father in the faith, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, I don't know this, but was Peter thinking back on Jesus' example and very clear teaching on leadership at this meal? Maybe he's thinking back to the disciples, himself and his friends, having an argument about who's the best while Jesus is trying to lay down a model of servant leadership. Lead as a servant, not as one to be served or fighting to be first. I can only imagine that as Jesus got down, took on the servant's towel and went to each disciple, including Judas, and washed their feet. That that kind of of illustration teaches. That gets in deep inside you. You never forget that. It alters you the rest of your life. He goes on. Verse 4, it says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Is, G- is, is Peter remembering how Jesus opposed the proud disciples, calling out their useless comparing to one another and Peter's blind bravado? Such that when he writes that God gives grace to the humble, he can think back on, oh, what a fool I was. What a mess I made of that moment. Oh, I wish I could do it over, but I can't. Then some sifting came. And then Jesus restored. Oh, he gave grace to me through the humbling process. Now think about the satanic sifting that Jesus just promised Peter was going to go through. This is now years in the past. It's proven that he endured this satanic attack. Look at verse 8. He writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter lived what he wrote. There's context to this fathering, shepherding, disciple-making wisdom that's coming from Peter to those around him. He was a spiritual toddler here in Luke 22. But he grows from one degree of glory to another. Little by little, he grows into the image of Christ. And he's now a spiritual father and a spiritual grandfather. And he's a pastor that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't he? He experienced the shameless setting straight that Jesus gave to him. And he now spiritually parents the exact same way. You know, disciples of Jesus are spiritually messy. We misunderstand. We can be awfully self-assured. We can be utterly clueless about the future. Jesus grows us right in the midst of the mess. And you know what Jesus is doing right now? He is praying for you. Just like he prayed for the disciples, Jesus is praying for disciples. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.33. Who can bring a charge against any of God's elect? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What is Jesus doing? He's praying for us. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What assurance this provides us. Spiritually messy disciples of Christ keep drawing near to God. This assurance that we have that we have an advocate day and night is sealed with blood. It's rock solid. You can count on this. All right, so Jesus now shifts to what is immediately ahead for his disciples. Like our own children, they have no idea how to prepare for what is to come on their own. But God gives our children parents. And God gives disciples Jesus. Jesus doesn't berate them for not knowing what's coming ahead. He teaches them. That's what a disciple maker does. So I phrase it this way. Disciples are not only spiritually messy, uh, they are strategically messy. And if you're a child trying to write strategically, that's a $6 word. That's really hard to write. It's hard to even keep it on the page. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. As in nothing, quote, we lacked nothing. He said to them, but now 
Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You know, God is a sending God. It's always been this way. He is a missionary through and through. Instead of a cold, distant, uninvolved father, God is a loving, initiating, active father. In fact, when you look at Jesus and you sort of see the Old Testament period end and then Jesus explodes on the scene, John the Baptist comes announcing Jesus. He's making the path open for Jesus to come. Jesus is the last and greatest. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all the prophets who had gone before him. He is coming and proclaiming a message of repentance. He is coming and showing them the path to the abundant life, the way of salvation, the way out of their sin. Why? Because God the Father is a missionary God, and He sends Jesus on a mission to proclaim this to them. You know what the privilege of every Christian is? It's to be on mission with God the Father. Just as God sent Jesus... Something that Jesus says over 40 times in the, in the Gospel of John alone. Jesus tells us that we are sent by Him. In the chapter called His High Priestly Prayer, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, 18 says this. As you, Father, sent me, Jesus, into the world, so I, Jesus, have sent them, disciples, into the world. We are on a mission for God. In fact, the word mission is Latin for sent ones. Literally, it's just someone has sent you out to accomplish something. There's no higher calling. There's no greater purpose than to be sent, to be on mission from God. God works his ways through each one he saves. God works his ways through each one he saves. From the the most infant, brand new baby Christian all the way to the grandfathers and grandmothers in the faith. Now, that's the amazing news. It comes with some scary news. You know what the scary news is? Like children packing for a trip, we have no idea how to prepare for the mission. We don't know what's coming around the corner on our own. So whenever we go on a trip, we always have our kids pack for themselves. A, because we have a lot of kids. It would be too much for the parents to pack. B, because we're not uber-controlling people. But C, because we want them to grow in this. We want them to try. Um, We never let our kids get in the car with their suitcase and drive away without mom checking what they packed. This is just the voice of experience, right? Children have no idea how to pack on their own. We will tell them. We're going for this length of time. The weather will be roughly this. We'll be doing these kinds of activities. Don't forget these things. Got it! Off they go to go pack. Here's what we find. In one, we might find a pocket knife, a jacket, and a toothbrush. That's it. Nothing else. Like clothes on my back, I'm good. That, those are the main items that were on one's mind. In another, we find a change of stuffed animals for each day of the trip, but not a single change of underwear 
for any day in, uh, on, on that trip. My kids are giggling right now because I just said underwear on TV. Here's another. Another packed one time every pair of underwear they owned, but only two shirts. In one, we see a suitcase filled with toys and a blankie. And in their minds, they're like, as long as I've got these toys and this blankie, I am set. What could I possibly be missing? Even as they get older, my high school daughter, Tegan, will pack for weeks of camping. And it comes to find out she has no shoes packed whatsoever. She thinks this is a good plan for camping. Here's the point. Children need help with planning, with priorities, with expectation, with strategy. When I say that we don't know how to pack, there's a whole world of knowledge that we don't understand. The reason we don't know what to pack is because we're too short-sighted. We're like kids packing toys and a blankie, going, I've got some comfort items and some entertainment. I'm good, without any sense of what might be needed in the future. I'm going to use the term ministry and mission uh, to, to, to mean not somehow paid pastors or missionaries who move off to Kenya to go do something specific. I'm talking about the idea that we are all living a life of ministry, that life is one big ministry trip. So ministry isn't a one-size-fits-all. Different missions call for different provisions. How on earth are we supposed to know what to pack? We are but children. Jesus sends out his students on many missions trips to prepare them for his pending absence. He's going away soon. He is leaving the mission in these few people's hands. So he preps them by teaching them to hear from him. So he's recounting with them. Hey, remember that time I sent you out with nothing? Yeah. What did you lack? Nothing. Yeah, well, this time it's different. He's saying grab some supplies, pawn some stuff and get a sword. Um, I'm about to be numbered with the criminals in the very short future. This is about to get rocky. This is not like the last time. This mission trip adventure we call life requires daily checking in with Jesus. Not leaning on your own understanding. And it means that you claim the title and status of student at all times. Think about student drivers, right? We graduate away from student drivers. When we see student driver, we go, oh, wow, this person's still learning. You know what? Christian, there are no mature disciples. There's no one who's arrived. We are all in the process from one degree of glory to another of maturing. That means that I have things to learn every single day day. And if I lean on past experience, oh, I've got this. We did incredible ministry. I know all about how to do this. Yes, you have past experience, but think about how Jesus healed. He rarely healed in the same way twice. If you were there when he spit in the mud and and made some mud and put it on the person's eyes, you'd think, I'm on a spitting ministry. Like, that's how it works. I've got it. I've seen it done. I was there firsthand. Different missions call for different provisions. Do you see how comparing gets you in trouble? Even if you look at other people and try to to just mimic or copy them, you are missing out on Jesus telling you your provisions for the day, your grace for the day. Yes, you're filled with ideas about what might be, but Jesus knows what's ahead and he tells us what to pack. So keep in step with Jesus. Learn to hear and trust his voice. It's a wild ride. It rarely makes sense in the moment. It's often not on your timeline. 
abide anyway. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus isn't telling them everything, but he's telling them what they need to know each step of the way. I close with this thought. Remember that God's plan of salvation includes and incorporates wicked plans of destruction. That means that any plan of destruction that the smallest peon has against you or the enemy of enemies, Satan, has against you doesn't thwart God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation is at work and it often includes and incorporates the betrayal of Judas, the sifting of Simon, and on it goes. You know, there's precious little about the future that you are really certain of. And there's precious little about the present that you're actually in control of. If anyone needed humbling, God just sent the year 2020 to us, right? Things in the future that we were fairly certain of. Things in the present that we thought we were in control of. A worldwide humbling has gone on it for people who have ears to hear it. Maybe this is part of God opposing the proud. Self-reliance leads you to dramatically overestimate your own abilities in the face of temptation. I'm ready to go to prison and even die with you. A little ripple comes. A little testing comes. And there's a humbling. There's a humility. There's a crying out in dependence on God right now that is present in people. Christian, if that's you, be a missionary. People are on edge right now. They are longing to hear hopeful truth. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep in step with Him and His ways. He prays for you. He holds you. He guides you into this next season. He is with you, Christian, in your mess. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't shame us. In His loving ways, He grows us. And like Peter, when we see this happen in our own life, we are then able to grow up and begin to help the youngers around us. In fact, we are called to help the youngers around us. To shamelessly set them straight. Not just barf out truth on them and hope they figure it out. Not give them a time out till they can figure out how to behave like a better Christian. Not to see inconvenience and messiness and flakiness and up and downness and crazy emotion as somehow something seeming that they're some kind of a lost cause. But that's not an inconvenient thing. That's something to enter into and use that as a loving, teachable moment. No shame, no ignoring the mess, but entering in. All right, set down your notebook, close your Bible, close your eyes for a moment. Over and over again in Scripture, we're called to set our mind on things above. When we set our mind on things above, Jesus has already done this with his disciples. He's giving them a a vision for the future. Spiritual things that are unseen, but, but more real, more lasting even than what we can see and touch. 
We set our mind on things above. It allows us not to live a life of comparing or puffing up our own abilities or dreaming up strategies apart from God. Instead, we get a new sense of what real treasure is and how to live by faith. I use this as a closing prayer from Philippians 3.7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and come one with Him. For I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. Amen.